0: Case S01, E04, David Elliot. We're going to start this episode a little differently than usual. I'm going to give you a challenge. In a minute, I'm going to read out a list of words. There are over 30 in the case notes transcript, in case you'd like to challenge yourself further, but for this, I will do a shorter list. Some of these words are, or were, Brand names, that is, they are producers of various different products. And this is either in the UK or beyond. Some, to my knowledge, have never been brand names. So your challenge is, can you identify all the words in the list that I'm about to read that are or were brands? Ready? Here we go. Aspirin. Biro Dry ice, Escalator, Memory stick, Ping pong, Cellotape, Superglue, Trampoline, Zipper. Well, how did you do? I have to confess, I actually lied. Every word I read just then is or was once a trademarked brand name. Surprised by any of them? More to the point, why are we playing a strange corporate word association game? Here comes a very long answer to that question in the form of the rest of this episode. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection, and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements, and links to further reading, at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this podcast. It's March 2012. We're in Phoenix, Arizona. Spring has brought with it a few cloudier days and it's still a little cool, only around the low 20s, that's around 70 degrees Fahrenheit. David Elliott is using his friend Christopher Gillespie's GoDaddy account. He has just finished registering 763 domain names. Now this is nothing unusual, people register thousands of websites every day. But these domain names are a little different. Elliott has registered, for instance, googlegaycruises.com and googledonaldtrump.com and googlestarbucks.com and GoogleChevron.com, and you get the idea. He's registered a lot of sites with the word Google in the name. Somewhat predictably, Google responds and fast. It files a complaint that the registrations have been carried out in bad faith and that Gillespie and Elliot have no legitimate interest in them. A few weeks pass by and an almost uninterrupted run of brilliant sunshine rockets the temperatures up as high as the low 40s. That's close to 110, again, for those in Fahrenheit. As May 2012 arrives, so too does bad news, and it's addressed to David Elliot. Google's complaint has been upheld. Elliot must hand the domain names over to them. What is Elliot's response? This one man, very soon too, since Gillespie will shortly join the new action, but right now, just this one guy, David, decides to take on Goliath. His ambitious master plan? Strip Google of two of their trademarks, the 502 mark and the 75 mark. Why does he care about these two? They are effectively the trademarks that protect the brand name, Google. Now, I'm simplifying a lot here, but 502 covers computer hardware and software, and 75 covers services, indexes, databases, or in short, a global computer information network. Now, just for context, I don't think Elliot or Gillespie are billionaires. I could be wrong, but I'm going to assume that they are both people of relatively ordinary means. By contrast, in 2012, when this all really kicks off, Google is making just shy of 6 million dollars per hour, or around 4 billion dollars per month. Google can afford an army of world-leading, sharply-dressed super lawyers. Even if Elliot had an outstanding case, this would be a mountain to climb Good lawyers can put in endless blocks and delays to increase costs and drag out the battle and basically make it an unwinnable fight for the ordinary person. Moreover, Google has an extremely vested interest in winning this case. If it lost, the consequences would be seismic. Google would lose control of its brand name. Now, this is a trademark that Google itself estimates is worth... $113,669,000,000. What happens when you lose your trademark? Anyone can start using that word for their own purposes. And all of those billions of dollars? They would start tumbling and fast. So in its quest to grab a few domain names off of David Elliott, could Google have inadvertently lost control of its billion-dollar empire? Before we get stuck back into David versus Goliath, to really understand the forces and theories at play, it's useful to know a few important things about trademarks. So, let's do five facts just to get started. Fact one. You can trademark all kinds of surprising things. Smells, sounds, colours, images, and so on. But the cases we often hear about, and the ones that this episode is concerned with today, is where we trademark words or phrases, or in particular, where we trademark brand names. The principal purpose of brand name trademarks is to try to tell you the origins, or the producer, of whatever service or product it is that you're buying. So these are words that have been given a special, legally protected status, and that protection means that the trademark holder can control how others use that word or phrase. Within reason, they can't go tyrannically mad about it. Fact two. You can't just go out there and trademark any word you like. So for instance, in 2004, Donald Trump, the one and only, sought to trademark the phrase, you're fired. And all terrible, predictable jokes aside, the application was rejected. Common words and phrases are usually a no-go, so you'd be extremely lucky to get a trademark on the word water or sky, I say usually, looking at you, Microsoft, and your rather amazing trademark for the word Windows, and you too, Apple. Also, you can't trademark that which hath been already trademarked. So in 2010, Nicole Polizzi of Jersey Shore, I am way outside my comfort zone right now, tried to trademark her nickname, Snooki. S-N-O-O-K-I. I hope I'm saying that right, and if I'm not, I'm sorry. The USPTO, the United States Patents and Trademarks Office, denied her name trademark status because there is a British fictional cat with an almost identical name. Go the Brits. This Snooky is actually spelled with a Y rather than an I. It's the eponymous hero of the Adventures of Snooky line of books, and it was awarded trademark of the name years earlier. As a result, the USPTO was concerned that it might be confusing to the public to have two Snookies out there there can be only one. Snooky. Fact three. Grammar matters. So trademarks, and particularly brand name trademarks, are intensely linguistic in nature at a lot of different levels, and grammar really does creep into this. There's an organisation called the International Trademark Association, or the INTA, and it gives guidance to people with trademarks, It helps them to try to protect and enforce those trademarks, so their very blunt advice is as follows. Trademarks and service marks are proper adjectives, not nouns, not verbs. A mark should always be used as an adjective qualifying a generic noun that defines the product or service. Like They don't mess about, their leaflet is really very blunt. So they give these examples. They say things like, put on your Ray-Ban sunglasses and send it by FedEx Courier. So notice each time how it's Ray-Ban sunglasses and FedEx Courier. The specific brand name, Ray-Ban FedEx, becomes a modifier for this generic product. By contrast, they strongly recommend against businesses using their own trademarks in sentences like, put on your Ray-Bans. Or FedEx it. So, in those cases, as you can tell, Ray-Ban has become a noun and FedEx has become a verb. And what happens here is that you've kind of dropped the specific product itself and the brand name has shifted into the position of becoming the product. So, it's gone from just being this general brand name to being a specific product. That's where the problems start to creep in. The problem is though, language is an evolving entity and it laughs in the face of your rules. It does not give a fig what the INTA thinks. People will verb nouns and noun adjectives all day long if it suits them, and it's difficult to explain to the ordinary person in the street how saying, pass me a Kleenex or I hate hoovering causes any harm to anyone, least of all to a corporate giant somewhere out there rolling in billions of dollars. But this tiny daily erosion, like rain on cliffs, does eventually have an effect. So as the INTA argues, such uses pave the sure and steady road to the ultimate loss of your trademark as people begin to forget that the brand name is distinct from the product or services itself. So this leads us on to... Fact 4. You can lose your trademark. There are lots of reasons why, actually. We could go through a boring list of reasons why. You know, maybe you obtained it fraudulently. Maybe you got it and you didn't use it for five years, so it's considered to have fallen into inactive use. Or maybe your trademark has become so widely used by the public that it has fallen victim to something called genericide. Okay, just being a popular brand name alone is not enough. Otherwise, Coca-Cola, Cadbury, and so on would have all lost their trademark status. A specific process has to occur. So the brand name, for instance, Harley-Davidson, Sony, Apple, whatever, has become a synonym for a specific product or service to the extent that people use it to refer to that item. So for instance, if I said Thermos or Yo-Yo or Zipper, you're thinking of specific products. You're not really thinking of, oh, that's a brand and they produce lots of different things. And they were all brand names like Hitachi and Microsoft. But in the case of, say, Trampoline, the producer has become the word for the product. OK, so I'm simplifying here a bit because there are actually slightly more complicated cases. And because this is a podcast on trademarks, we should do this properly. So we'll just throw in this extra complication. Sometimes the brand name and the product are invented together. And this is particularly true of new toys. If you're out there manufacturing and inventing a new toy and giving it a name, you have to bear this in mind. If the thing that you're inventing never existed before and then you invent it and then you call it the Ricadra, which happens to be my name backwards, there is no other competing producer of this thing because I've created it. So the name that I've given it and the product itself, the brand name and the object name are one and the same thing. And there's only one source for this product, which is me. So this is known as a single source case and they are especially legally difficult because if the product name and the producer name are the same how do you know when people are mistaking the producer for the product so the same as with trampoline or yo-yo the brand name and the product name are the same thing in other cases though and much more often the case really there are multiple competing makers of an object or providers of a service or it already had a non-proprietary name to begin with, it had sort of a more generic name, and someone just came along and marketed their version so much better than everyone else. So, escalators. They were originally called moving staircases, the 1950s is calling. And sellotape was actually sticky tape, or is actually sticky tape, biro is a ballpoint pen, a zimmer frame is a walking frame, and so on. But someone's come along, marketed their product particularly effectively, And their proprietary eponym has ruthlessly supplanted these generic alternatives. Sometimes this is so complete that the common name, the ordinary name, is pushed out of mainstream use altogether. So if you like this sort of fun, try going around saying, Hey, let's take the moving staircase. Or, my head hurts. Do you have any acetylsalicylic acid? Asking for acid at work may not go down well. Finally, fact five. When there is a dispute over whether a trademark has suffered genericide or not, the main method used by the court to determine its status is something called the primary significance test. Sometimes you'll find it's called the principal significance test. What is this? Well, it is a major cornerstone in trademark law, and at its simplest, this is a test to see how the public thinks of a word. It's the kind of most elaborate, legalistic word association game you can think of. So when you hear, for instance, Hoover, what do you think of? Now, this is an interesting test to play between the UK and the US and Australia. In the UK, if you say Hoover, do you think of this product that's designed to suck dust and fluff out of carpets and off floors? Or, much more likely if you're in the US or Australia, do you think of a brand that produces vacuum cleaners and tumble dryers and dishwashers and all kinds of stuff. So effectively, Hoover is now what we sometimes call a ghost mark. It has trademark status legally, but in practice, in the UK, it's almost certainly been lost. According to the United States Code 15, Section 1064, Subsection 3, of course, and I am kind of paraphrasing here, if the majority of the public who use the term are unaware that it is also a trademark or a brand name, in other words, if it has lost its primary significance as a brand, then the word is deemed generic and the trademark can be lost. Quick side point here. There are specialists who administer questionnaires with the sole purpose of finding out what the primary significance of a brand is for a particular demographic. And those specialists, these survey designers, these questionnaire administrators, administrators what is the word there? Anyway, these people who administer these questionnaires can be called up in court to present evidence to help the judge decide on the outcome of a trademark dispute. So those were our fun five facts about trademarks. I know you are as blown away by this as I am. So we'll wrap this section up. And for the purposes of the rest of this case, you really only need to hang on to two details. Firstly, the INTA's advice that you should not use or allow your trademark to be used as anything other than an adjective because verbing or nouning is this quick route to genericide. Secondly, if the majority of people, when they hear your brand name, think of a specific product rather than you as a producer, then your trademark has probably suffered from genericide and can be stripped by the court. Right, we've covered the theory. Let's get back to David Elliot, who wants his 763 domain names back, and he's going about this by trying to strip Google of its brand name trademarks. What were Elliot's arguments? So, as I said, Elliot's first move is to try to cancel Google's two brand name trademarks the 075 or 75 mark and the 502 mark. And he goes about this on the grounds of generic usage. Quite how persuasive Elliot's initial arguments were, it's difficult to determine because you can't really find much documentation on this first step in the lawsuit, or at least I couldn't. If you do find any, send me a message. I would love to read it. Whatever the case, Google takes the challenge seriously. Like I said, to them, their brand name is worth billions. So Google promptly wheel out the big guns and they fire back with a countersuit. So they don't just defend themselves against Elliot's suit, they take up litigation against him in return. And in the countersuit, Google alleges, amongst other things, trademark dilution, cyber squatting, we'll come back to that later, unfair competition, and false advertising. Not to be outdone, Elliot rebuts. In February 2013, his legal team files Document 86, There's links to all of these in the case notes as always. And this lays out a slew of reasons why he continues to think that Google should lose its trademark. He opens with a claim that Google has failed to successfully defend its trademark in this case already because its only evidence is its market share, a flawed survey, the opinion of a lexicologist who admits that Google when used as a verb bears no trademark significance, and incomplete dictionary evidence from sources it has intimidated into submission. Okay, so I'm not sure what's more gripping here. The subtle shade that he seems to be throwing at Google's linguists, or the hints at lexicological terrorism conspiracy theories. It's all amazing. Whatever the case, Elliot now clearly formulates a key argument that runs through all of his legal challenges, and we'll end up reciting this again and again and again as he keeps hitting this point over and over. So his major argument is, he claims that Google is being used most often as a verb. That is when we say things like, I Googled her email address, or could you Google that for me? And he says, hey, hey, verbs can't be trademarks, right? Remember what the INTA says? You shouldn't use it as a verb. So if Google is mostly occurring as a verb and verbs can't be trademarks, then ta-da! De facto, the trademark should be lost. So it's an interesting argument, For now, though, how does he bolster this claim? What proof does he use? To be fair to him, he goes through a range of potential sources, and these include how Google is used on television shows, in films, on the news, in magazines, novels, cartoons, and so on. He also points out that Google appears in thousands of domain names offered by the GoDaddy auction site, where Google is incorporated into the name as a verb, like the domain names he registered himself. He argues that when the American Dialect Society Quick nod to you guys, well done ads. When the American Dialect Society chose their word of the decade, they selected the verb variant of Google. Quite how that bolsters his argument, I'm not entirely sure, but he just says, well, the ads did this, so, you know, it's a big deal. He claims that his own search engine, when asked to define Google, returns a lowercase verb-only definition. Now, amusingly, I googled define Google, on Google, and sure enough, the top hit is indeed Google's own dictionary definition entry for the verb. I included a screenshot in the case notes, but you could just run the same query yourself. Even more amusingly, in Google's own rules for proper usage, they give a list of Google trademark do's and don'ts, and their list of do's contains the following. Use the trademark only as an adjective, never as a noun or verb, and never in the plural or possessive form. Use the generic term for the product following the trademark. For example, Google search engine, Google search, Google web search. There's a link for that in the case notes too. Elliot also uses three sets of survey results. The first two sets, the questionnaire has been done by his legal team. I can only speculate, but I guess they thought, eh, we're lawyers, we're really smart. It's just a questionnaire. How hard can this be? Oh, linguistic students will know this. Questionnaires and interviews are really hard to do properly. I'll talk about this a bit more later on, but anyway, let's move on to what they actually did. They interviewed 1,033 members of the relevant public. That's in quote marks. Who relevant is, I do not know. These members of the relevant public were asked to complete the phrase, I most often use the word Google to mean... And then they were given a series of options that they could tack on to the end of that so 52.2 percent over half chose to search something on the internet so they're thinking of this as a verb only 28.7 so about a third said the name of a specific search engine so thinking of it something like an adjective or a noun in their head now there are so many more convolutions to these two surveys and there's a third one that's administered by a business that specialises in conducting questionnaires. But I'm going to return to this morass later on when the court gets their hands on it. So what else does Elliot cite to back up his argument? Well, he throws in more examples about how people say they Googled on Wikipedia or Googled on IMDb or Googled on Pinterest. In the mass of all of the things Eliot's putting forward, what a shame he didn't actually spend a bit more time on this. His document also doesn't really spell this out clearly, and more's the shame, but here he seems to be making this implicit argument that these people mean that they use the inbuilt search function on each of these non-Google platforms and they are calling the mechanism or act of searching Googling. And that's kind of interesting and different. It's a much more generic use. There are some other arguments besides, but for brevity I'm going to skip on to the next big one. Elliot argues that in their prior move against him, Google failed to show that the primary significance of the word Google is as a trademark. So he's basically saying they failed their own primary significance test. And remember, primary significance is all about this word association. What's the thing that you think of first and foremost when you see a word like, for instance, hula hoop or Velcro or Nescafe? So hula hoop, you probably thought of a toy. Velcro, you probably thought of specific sticky... What's the generic? People call it hook and eye material whatever it's called and when I said Nescafe you probably thought of a brand that produces lots of different things so the trademark Nescafe stands up to the primary significance test the hula hoop trademark does not Elliot is saying that Google fails their own primary significance test so he also takes issue with a test that Google used to determine that the brand name is still a primary signifier instead in their evidence they wheeled out something known as a Teflon survey What is a Teflon survey? I hear you ask. It sounds fascinating. You've already done one. You did one at the start of this episode. So in simple terms, you give people a list of words and you ask them to identify all the ones that are brands and all the ones that are not. And you sort of measure the success. So if only 30% of people recognize that the word Teflon is a brand, then you're kind of sliding towards generic use and so on. So Elliot argues here this is skewed towards product and therefore towards nouns or objects and remember this whole argument that he's putting forward is that google's usage is primarily as a verb and the teflon survey simply doesn't address this one final bit from elliot's suit in section 7 he takes aim at google's linguist he really goes for google's linguist it's amazing i'm just going to quote from the document because honestly i can't paraphrase this in a better way than it's actually already written it's amazing Section 4A7. This is on page 12 if you want to go read this. We're starting with a heading. Defendant's linguist is conflicted. His confusions are of law and without factual support. And he admits that use of Google as a verb cannot have trademark significance. So that was the heading. On to the main quote itself. Defendant's expert linguist Jeffrey Nunberg was first contacted regarding his services by plaintiff's counsel, that is Elliot's counsel, in December of 2012. Jeffrey Nunberg, to give you some context, is an American linguist and researcher. At present, he's an adjunct professor at the UC Berkeley School of Information, and in the past he's taught at Stanford. So Nunberg would have been in his late 60s at the time of this case. Plaintiff's counsel sent Nunberg the complaint asking if he would be an expert in the case. In addition, Plaintiff's counsel left Nunberg a voicemail explaining Plaintiff's theories in the case. In response, Nunberg emailed that he thought the case was, quote marks, interesting, and that he would be, quote marks, happy to discuss being Plaintiff's expert. On December 5th, 2012, Nunberg and Plaintiff's counsel had a telephone conversation about the case and plaintiff's theories and strategies thereof. Following the conversation, plaintiff felt that Nunberg was, quote marks, on board with being plaintiff's expert witness. The next day, Nunberg sent plaintiff's counsel several expert witness reports that he had prepared in prior cases to ensure that he had not previously expressed any conflicting opinions that could be used to impeach the opinion he would give in this case, at that time contemplating an opinion in favour of plaintiff's. After reviewing these reports, on January 30th, 2013, plaintiff's counsel told Nunberg that plaintiffs were interested in retaining Nunberg as an expert witness. On March 4th, 2013, however, Nunberg told plaintiff's counsels, quote marks, I was looking forward to working on your case, but some health issues make it difficult for me to make commitments over the intermediate term, so I'll have to pass. Despite all this, Nunberg has now reversed his opinion and provided an opinion for defendant. He is clearly a hired gun who will say anything he is paid to say. Several of Nunberg's opinions are conclusions on the ultimate issues of this case, such as whether widespread use of a trademark as a verb affects the validity of the mark. Clearly, Nunberg's opinions on this are improper. In addition, some of Nunberg's opinions contradict existing law. Nunberg opines that a trademark can be representative of a genus without being generic. However, The very definition of a generic word is one which represents the genus, rather than the product of one specific producer. Nunberg's contrary opinion must be disregarded. Finally, Nunberg opines that a verb can never function as a trademark. As will be discussed in the following section, and in plaintiff's motion for summary judgment, the logical conclusion to be drawn from this opinion is that verb usage is necessary non-trademark or generic usage. Thus, If the majority usage of a word is as a verb, then the word is generic. Yeah, he really sort of sticks it to Nunberg there. Legal documents can be dry and dull and tedious. Sometimes they run for hundreds of pages and they don't really make a point. I kind of think that's a strategy to make people switch off and miss important parts of the argument. But sometimes they do stuff like this and they are better than a good book. If you have a warped sense of humour. But you know what Elliot and his team don't use? They don't use a corpus linguist. What can you do? Moving on. In short, as you can see, Elliot's overriding argument is that Google as a verb is the dominant usage and that trademark guidelines already dictate that verbs are de facto, not trademarks anyway, and that as a result, Google should lose its trademark status. And that their linguist is a hired gun, of course. So David has fired a whole arsenal at Goliath. How will Google respond? Okay, so let's get in our time machine and move forward about two and a half years. We are now in October 2014 and the court has published its findings. We're gonna cut a long story short here. Google successfully defends itself. So I guess you could say Google wins. Why though? Well, the court takes apart the two prongs of Elliot's suit pretty quickly and efficiently as follows. Firstly, they deal with this supposed overwhelming verb usage. As I'm sure you are now very clear, Elliot's argument rests on the fact this verb "Google" is dominant and also non-trademarkable, ergo generic. Helpfully, the court identifies two usages here, and this is actually something that I wish had happened much further back in the suit as it developed, because this is quite a useful distinction. So the court identifies indiscriminate and discriminate verb usage. As it would suggest, this discriminating version, or this discriminate verb usage, is where users say they're Googling, and they mean with Google The indiscriminate version is where people say they're Googling and what they mean is they are using a search function and this could be on Wikipedia or on Tinder or whatever. It doesn't necessarily mean on the Google search engine itself. So this also pops back up in just a few moments. Now, Google themselves don't contest the fact that their brand name is used as a verb. It would be kind of insane for them to say, oh, well, this is not an issue. Instead, they stick to this central tenet that no matter how people use the word, when they hear and think of Google, they associate it with a specific brand. So remember, as I've said all the way through, trademarks are about identifying the source of a product or service. And if you hear Google and still think of, for instance, the Google logo or the corporation or the creator of a search engine, then it still has primary significance as a brand. It doesn't matter whether you also use it as a verb too. It doesn't even matter if you use it as a verb pretty much all the time. So this actually raises a really interesting point. What is the usage of a trademark versus how do we think of a word? You may think of a word in one way, consistently, but use it in a different way, consistently. And how does that factor into trademark law? Anyway, that is the grammar dealt with by the court. They next move on to the second point of the admissibility of Google's expert linguists. So remember, Elliot kind of wasn't keen on Jeffrey Nunberg and described him as a hired gun and called him contrary and some other words besides, well the court has something to say on that front too. Plaintiffs attack Dr. Nunberg as a quote mark hired gun who will say anything he is paid to say because he allegedly quote marks reversed his opinion. While inconsistencies may be an indicator of reliability, plaintiffs do not substantiate their allegation that Dr. Nunberg reversed his opinion. The fact that Dr. Nunberg first expressed interest in being retained by plaintiffs before being subsequently retained by defendant does not necessarily mean Dr. Nunberg gave inconsistent professional opinions. To the contrary, the only evidence in the record is Dr. Nunberg's testimony that plaintiffs never retained, paid or shared any confidential or work product information with him, that he never shared any of plaintiff's information with defendant, and that while he may have shared ideas with plaintiffs, the only expert opinion he rendered was the one contained in his report. But there's more. The court also takes issue with those three surveys. So remember, the first two surveys, I think the lawyers just thought, how hard can this be? Then they asked people, I most often use the word Google to mean. Now the first survey offered the answers to search something on the internet the name of a specific search engine, the internet in general. The second survey asks the same question, gives three options again. The first option is to search something on the internet, again, the name of a company, the internet in general, again. Notice how neither of these surveys offers the respondent an answer along the lines of to search for information using the Google search engine. This is a pretty amazing oversight. I mean, I could dedicate an entire podcast series just to how writing and administering a good questionnaire takes an enormous amount of thought and care. Just questioning somebody in general is a very delicate process. Questions can be leading or slippery. If you don't give a fair range of answers, the choices that are left can be manipulative. Even the way that the questionnaire is framed and given can change how people respond. So there's studies that show that if you offer somebody a drink, if you smile at them, if you explain the survey in a particular way, you will get very different responses from people, even though it's the same questionnaire, even though it's the same demographic. People see things like questionnaires as almost a test. People try to people please, and they want to try and give you the answer that they think you want, which is of course entirely useless. What we need is what they're actually thinking. And so if you do certain things you can change the outcome of your questionnaire substantially. So anyway, you could do an entire podcast series on how to write and administer a good questionnaire successfully. In fact, just to really hammer this home, even Elliot's expert survey designer, Mr. James Berger, who I assume they hired later on because they realised perhaps that these first two surveys weren't going to be admissible, even he came in for some criticism, and it's literally his job and his expertise to do this. The evidence gathered from his survey was ruled only partially admissible document 116 has this damning little aside in it as follows mr Berger stated that his survey tested neither the primary significance of the term google to consumers nor whether the term was generic with respect to search engine hardware and software that are the subject of the 502 and 075 marks i mean what was it testing but anyway whatever the case this wasn't the only issue with the evidence that Elliot puts forward. When it comes to the dictionary usages, Elliot's team could not provide a single example of an entry that did not also include the trademark somewhere in the definitions. Now, they will probably also argue that this is because Google has intimidated dictionaries into submission, but you know, it is what it is. They were unable to cite a single instance in which a major media outlet referred to another search engine as Google. They couldn't produce convincing evidence for their assertion that the verb Google is more frequent than the non-verb Google. Google even goes so far as to suggest that there is simply no way to provide evidence of this kind. I almost leapt out of my chair. Again, corpus linguist here. There are so many good ways to attack this particular question. If you do want to know whether or not a particular usage is more dominant in a particular cross-section of society, speak to us corpus linguists. People, come on, we're really nice. We don't bite. Finally, the outcome is that Elliot has not been able to meet the burden of evidence required, and the court rules thus. The court is mindful that quote marks, summary judgment is generally disfavoured in the trademark arena due to quote marks, the intensely factual nature of trademark disputes. However, summary judgment is nevertheless appropriate when there is no genuine issue of material fact. Such is the case here. In different words, his suit is a non-suit. A little later on, the court really hammers this home, and they add, Plaintiffs, at their peril, neglected their burden of proof under the primary significance test, instead electing to present evidence about whether a majority of the consuming public understood the word Google as a verb. Disregarding primary significance resulted in an absolute failure of proof that is fatal to plaintiffs' claim for genericide surely this is the end of the matter it is not of course this guy wants his domain names and he will take on google to get them back so elliot appeals the judgment and the case goes to the ninth circuit in march 2017 there is a hearing in courtroom 2 of the san francisco court of appeals and finally we get an answer kind of to quite what Elliot wanted the sites for anyway. I mean I don't know, have you been wondering this? Because this bugged me for ages. Like, what was he even gonna do with all these random domain names? What were his plans? Well that mystery is resolved, kind of, at the ninth circuit hearing. Here you go. We didn't
1: We registered what was the purpose? Our plan, the, the plaintiffs here were not. What we're arguing for, why did they do it? The first thing that need must know is our complaint has no damage claim them. whatsoever. The reason they went out and they were, they were working on uh, a uh, patent that they were trying to figure out how to secure squatters, other squatters, how to put together to squatters okay. from the African squatters in order to avoid their out of other squatters. Because at the time this was happening, the predominant use of the word Google will search. And the trending word of search engines was Google. So they combined Google meaning to search with the mail. And when you combine to search with a noun on multiple devices, you were asking the search engine to search for that information, and you were getting a higher rate of return. That was the theory. They were testing that theory. It was academic. And they were not they making it. Everything. Everything. What would happen if somebody searched the internet for one of your registered domain names, Where, where would it take? Most went nowhere. A couple went to some other sites for some other academic purposes. There was not a significant amount of dollars being generated. I thought I read something in the record about some sort of an adult site. Using, oh, that's, you're right. I mean, this is the, those are interesting facts, right, but that's was, I don't know. I but mean, I'm to have been figure out what's going on. There was, there was any, They uh, were registering uh, some of them at the top-level domain of XXX. At the time XXX had started, it had better uh, analytics, and so in order to track how people were using, they dumped some of these on-base onto the XXX site because it was a newer top domain, which had better metrics.
0: In the end, Judge Richard C. Tallman gives his opinion, and in it, he affirms the findings of the district court's summary judgment in favour of Google. Elliot's appeal is described thus. The plaintiffs produced thousands of pages of largely irrelevant evidence, showing merely that Google is sometimes used as a verb. The sliver of potentially relevant evidence purporting to show that the public uses the verb Google to refer to searching the internet with any search engine, as opposed to Google search engine in particular, is too insubstantial to save the plaintiff's case. So remember, this is the key little bit that I wanted to come back to. Elliot had in his possession these few slivers of evidence showing that sometimes people used this verb Google to mean using the search function on any site, on Pinterest, on IMDb, on Wikipedia, and the court noted this as indiscriminate verb usage. A little later, the court adds that the expert linguists working for Elliot's counsel conceded in their deposition that, despite their opinion that Google is used in verb form without regard to a specific search engine, the term has not become a generic name for search engines. So those linguists that were working on Elliot's counsel, incidentally, were. Dr. Patrick Farrell, Professor Emeritus of the Department of Linguistics at the University of California, Davis, and Dr. Alan Metcalfe, Professor of English at McMurray College in Jacksonville, Illinois. Sort of interesting that he had two expert linguists, but anyway. Surely though, this is truly, really, absolutely the end of the matter. You know what's coming. Elliot heads for the Supreme Court. In extremely simplistic terms, he wants to appeal the appeal. And for this, he puts forward three more arguments. I'm going to summarise them because this guy is never going to stop. So he basically says, the Ninth Circuit didn't sort out the whole verb angle of his argument and how this fits into trademark genericization. He says that their opinion conflicts with an argument by the Second Circuit about changing the test for genericness from majority usage to majority understanding. This is the bit that I was saying before about how you use a word versus how you think of a word. And that the Ninth Circuit supposedly misinterprets or follows a contradictory and unworkable prior decision. Finally, five months later, on Monday the 16th of October 2017, only last year, as I'm recording this podcast, there is a hearing to determine whether the writ of certiorari, that is the appeal of the appeal, will be allowed. And the petition is denied. Will Elliot try any further action? Honestly, I do not know, but I get the sense that this guy does not give up. So stay tuned, there could be a part two in future. Last note as I finish, if you are interested in how forensic linguistics and corpus linguistics work in the field of trademarks, they are both so relevant to this field, get stuck into some work by Roger Shuy, that's a forensic linguistic angle and if you want the corpus linguistics angle look at the work of adam Kilgarriff, k-i-l-g-a-r-r-i-f-f and i've linked to some of his work in the case notes as well this episode of on claire was entirely researched narrated and produced by me dr claire hardacre However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others. You can find acknowledgements and references for those people at the blog. Also there, you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash onclair. and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore on claire or if you like you can follow me on twitter at dr claire h the moral of the story is of course do forensic linguistics you could end up representing google in court but also do corpus linguistics then if you're taking google to court you might be able to throw some big data at them about whether google really is used as a verb more also just do linguistics anyway because it's awesome